You are listening to episode 54 of Pazichipotle. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. To find more information about the podcast, please go to pazdechipotle.com. You can subscribe, rate, and leave a review with your thoughts about the show using that podcast app you are using right now. Hola, everyone. Before I introduce today's episode, I want to send a warm voice hug to each and every one of you, wherever you are in the world in these difficult times. Since this is the first time in history that we are experiencing a global pandemic that is being monitored and talked about in real time, Well, that can increase the sense of urgency and uncertainty, but also it allows us to stay in contact, show that we care and give support to the people near to us and the people on the other side of the world. My gift to you, as always, is the opportunity to come with me to an audible journey, traveling through Mexico's wonderful landscapes, learn about the cultural legacy of our indigenous and mixed heritage culture, and of course, hearing about the foods that are the pride of the regions they represent. If this is the first time you are listening to Pasta Chipotle, I want to give you a very warm welcome to this podcast that is crafted and produced with much love and passion. Today, you will hear the final installment of the culinary regions of Mexico. I know, it's a bit sad, but at the same time, that means that by the end of the show today, you would have heard about the traditions, people, interesting facts and food traditions of all of the 32 states of the nation which is quite an odyssey if you think of it. And so, our final destination today is the north of the country, where dramatic canyons, stunning deserts, snowy mountains, prairies and grasslands are all sprinkled across the states of Chihuahua, Coahuila, Nuevo León, Durango and Zacatecas. If you've listened to all of the previous episodes of the culinary regions, by now you are more than aware of the multiverse that is Mexico and how strongly self-defined is every region. The area we will cover today shares a common history and cultural aspects that have played a big role in the shaping of their unique traditions and food practices. And while they couldn't be more different than the South, East, or even the Central High Plains, is that uniqueness and the ingenuity of their people that makes their traditions so interesting. On the special blog post of this episode and on the notes, which you can see on your podcast app, I've included a few links and book recommendations for this episode to stretch the enjoyment even further. Well, I think we're all more than ready for this grand finale. I hope you enjoy this episode.
The states of Chihuahua, Coahuila, Durango, Zacatecas, and Nuevo León are sandwiched by the coastal states of Sonora, Sinaloa, and Nayarit, and on the right by Tamaulipas and San Luis Potosí. Many millions of years ago, some areas of this territory were part of wetlands, marshes, lakes, and oceans during the Jurassic period, and dozens of dinosaurs reigned over this part of the world. From the small Cintasaurus that looked like a skinny velociraptor to the mighty Golgosaurus and the large herbivores like the Alamosaurus and Centaurosaurus that looked like a little bit like a triceratops with extra horns. The north states of Chihuahua and Coahuila alone cover nearly half of the length of the border between Mexico and the U.S. And I'm sure you might have heard of cities like Ciudad Juárez, Acuña, Ojinaga, and Piedras Negras. All of these are some of the many border cities whose history and life is inextricably linked to their counterparts on the other side of the border. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's explore the origins of the cultures of this region. So, I say we better adjust our time machine to, let's say, 2,500 years ago. Throughout many of the previous uh, 53 episodes of the show, I've talked about the cultural area known as Mesoamerica, which covers the central highlands of Mexico and extends south all the way to Central America. North of Mesoamerica, we find the area known as Aridoamerica, that covers half of modern-day Mexico all the way to the modern-day states of Texas, New Mexico, Utah, and California. The geographical conditions of this enormous area share many similarities with extreme weather conditions, dramatic mountain ranges, canyons, and semi-arid prairies, which, well, prove to be not really the most welcoming terrain for nomadic groups of humans that crossed from Europe via the Strait of Bering, looking for lands further south. So the groups that chose to stay in Arido America were forced to remain semi-nomadic. Seasonal hunting and foraging and some basic farming were the base of their diet. However hostile and difficult life was in Arido America, the tribes that flourished are as fascinating as they are unique like the Yaqui, Tarahumara or Raramuri, Opata, Mayo and Paquimé. All these people, along with the Tepewa and Chichimeca, were all spread in the modern-day state of Chihuahua. In Coahuila, there were thousands of descendants of the Mazahua, Nahua, Zapotec and Kikapoo people, who historically used to roam freely the large extensions of Arido America. Interestingly, there are two other cultural minorities in Coahuila, the Mascogo and Seminole people. Now, the Seminole are a Native American tribe that settled in the modern-day state of Florida, and they came in contact at some point in history with former African slaves that were the Mascogo people, who were fleeing from plantations and took refuge with them. 
The abolition of slavery in Mexico occurred much earlier than in the U.S., so this encouraged the Moscogo and Seminole to cross over to Mexico, but they still defined themselves, culturally, as Moscogo Seminole. The modern-day state of Nuevo León is home of the Alzapas, Coahuiltecos, Wallawises, Borrados, and Huachichiles, who were descended from the Chichimeca diaspora. According to the indigenous atlas of Mexico, in Zacatecas, we find descendants of the Chool, Chatino, Cora, Huasteco, Chichimeco, Mayo, not to be confused with Mayans, Mayo, Masawa, Otomi, Tarahumara, Totonaco, Tarasco, or Purepecha, Tapanaco, Tzeltzal, Tzotzil, and Zapoteco, among other micro-minorities. And last, the very dry state of Durango is home of the Cora, Huichol, Tarahumara, Tepehuano, Chinanteco, Chaol, Mayo, Oulteco, Matlacinca, Mije, and Mistex, among many others that are the ancestral inhabitants of this land. The cultural identities of the north of Mexico are indeed the same product of colonization in which indigenous tribes were largely absorbed by the colonial Spanish society. However, there are fundamental differences to the rest of central and southern Mexico, as I told you at the top of the show. First, almost all of the extension of these territories was largely underpopulated. And since the tribes that inhabited the area were largely semi-nomadic and only created almost temporary buildings and shelters and sometimes homes in caves, well, there wasn't really any ancient urban development like the ones we find in Mesoamerica. The Spanish conquest was largely focused on the central and southern parts of Mexico, because it concentrates the largest biodiversity, natural resources, and the biggest concentration of indigenous cultures. So the North didn't really pose as an area of interest for the viceregal economy. The Franciscan and Jesuit orders were deployed to explore and settle in the North, and they did so with a relative success, largely because unlike the military campaigns, their approach was, let's say, less aggressive and a bit more gradual. The Jesuits alone are largely responsible for the introduction of grapevines, for instance, in all the north of Mexico, from the Californias to Sonora, Chihuahua and Coahuila, and even on what is today the other side of the border. So it is them that you have to thank for, for your favorite glass of Pinot Noirs and Sauvignon Blancs from this area. Many tribes actually resolved to escape to the mountains, canyons and sierras to remain, well, safely distanced from the cruelty of the colonial regime, at the cost of remaining isolated and leading a precarious way of life, but to their eyes that was only endurable because that was in exchange to keeping their freedom. From the early years of the Spanish colony, dairy cattle, donkeys and sheep were introduced for farming in the north of Mexico, 
and that alone was pretty much the main economic drive of the region. And since it proved a bit too extreme to cultivate most of the native Mexican crops, it proved particularly easy to grow oatmeal, barley and wheat. For nearly oui, 200 years, this area of Mexico, or should I say this area of New Spain, was part of the provinces of New Vizcaya, New Extremadura, Nuevo León and Zacatecas, which were part of the kingdom of New Galicia. The European colonization of the north of New Spain has several peculiarities. One of them was the very unusual flexibility in the law to allow large settlements of Portuguese people who became ranchers, traders and miners, and many conversos or former Sephardi Jewish people who escaped religious persecution in Spain and decided to settle in the inhospitable north, where colonial politics were more concerned with creating an agricultural and farming economy than getting worked up about what people believed. And during the 1800s, with a mining boom, many investors were welcomed and created large communities of Germans, Polish people, Czechs, Mennonite Germans, British people, Austrian, also Hungarian and French. This cultural diversity brought by migration plus the relatively small indigenous population created a very particular regional culture with foods and music that were shared among all these diasporas. And this is one example. Perhaps some of you might have noticed that northern Mexicans have a particular preference for polkas and other umba umba type of music. And that is because it was this European diaspora, mainly German, Polish and Austrian, uh, who brought their folk music and instruments with them. And slowly these became adopted by everybody else in the north. Now, there are still a lot of cultural and historical aspects I want to talk about from each state, but I will do so in the following sections as I begin talking about the food from these states. So, our first stop will be the state of Zacatecas. Famous for its large deposits of ore, silver and other minerals, Zacatecas rapidly became an asset for the Spanish crown. While its agriculture is relatively low and not nearly as economically significant as its mining industry, the state was a battleground during the War of Independence, where royalists, who were mainly mining aristocrats, fought the republican armies. And again, during the revolution, these mining gentry opposed the revolutionary forces led by thousands of oppressed miners. But on a funny note, 
The municipality of Sombrerete, famous for its arid landscapes, has been for decades a favorite filming location for Hollywood films, including quite a few spaghetti westerns and, more importantly, Ringo Starr's The Caveman. And if you haven't seen it, come on, look it up because it's really funny. So here are my five top delicious foods and drinks from the state of Zacatecas. Number one, I chose a very intriguing drink called Agua de Obispo, or Bishop's Drink, and it's really more like a type of virgin Baroque clericot. Confused? Let me explain. Its culinary history is linked to the many monasteries in the area, and of course it reflects the resourcefulness or desperation of the monks to come up with some refreshing drink. So the base of this drink is actually juice water. The rest of the ingredients are toasted and peeled peanuts, raw and grated beetroot, finely chopped romaine leaves, one sliced banana, peeled orange wedges, and some people even add grated apples and of course sugar. All of this is mixed and chilled before serving. So how is that for an aperitif? Number two, yet another delicious version of enchiladas. And these are enchiladas zacatecanas. Now, as always, in traditional cooking, you will find multiple recipes that share the exact same name, but are completely different. And these enchiladas zacatecanas are no exception. But the one that I chose has a green and creamy sauce. It's prepared with chile poblano that is charred on an open flame and then peeled and clean pureed with onion, garlic, and diluted with chicken broth and crema fresca, that is, fresh cream. Número 3. Asado de boda or wedding stew. This stew is an interesting one because it's halfway mole. It is prepared with generous amounts of chopped pork and a thick and rich base prepared with guajillo, bay leaves, cloves, fried bread, a touch of chocolate, orange peel, onion, pepper, coriander seeds, thyme, and a pinch of oregano, cinnamon, garlic, and vinegar. Curiously enough, this asado de boda is actually not served at weddings, but it is a dish that the family of the groom prepares and offers to the family of the bride prior to the wedding for a private gathering to honor the engagement. Número 4. Mutton birria. There are many, many variations of birria across Mexico. This recipe from Zacatecas is prepared with mutton and spiced with chile ancho, morita, and cascabel. The herbal touch comes from a bit of cinnamon, thyme, oregano, cloves, and pepper. And like most birrias, it's topped with freshly chopped coriander and onion. And legend has it, it is the perfect cure for the most dreadful of hangovers. And last, number five, Zacatecas has a long tradition of making leather fruits and candied fruits. But in Zacatecas particularly, guava leather, candied prickle pear, pears and pineapple are a very indulgent treat. These techniques actually date further back beyond the colonial period and in a lovely butterfly effect, those were actually introduced into Spain by the very skilled Persian and Arab cooks in the Middle Ages.
And now let's head to Durango. Al ver el campo tan triste y solitario Donde se muere sin agua la semilla Los campesinos le rezan novenarios Cuando les faltan el frijol y la tortilla Qué falta que hace que reviva Pancho Villa Qué falta que hace que reviva Pancho Villa Durango is a proper treasure box with stunning and strange landscapes that go from snowy mountain forests, creeks, and also is home of the famous Silence Zone, also known as the Mapimi Biosphere Reserve, and is the natural habitat of giant tortoises, many types of snakes with luscious and beautiful colorful scales, birds of prey, coyotes, and beautiful large felines and arachnids, along with a very large variety of cacti. And it so happens that this area used to be part of the bottom of the Tethys Ocean in the Cenozoic era. And there have been important paleontological findings of large dinosaurs that roamed or rather swam in the area. Because this region is so rich in mineral deposits, there are many large spots where cars and pretty much any device that uses electricity in any form simply dies, along with compasses that either stop working or go spinning in all directions. Durango's most notable character is Doroteo Arango Arambula, who was born in 1878 deep in the area known as Rancho de Rio Grande, a particularly impoverished place where most people worked in semi-slavery at local haciendas. Like most people in the village, Doroteo didn't have an education, and at the death of his father, he took upon the responsibility to look after his family, two brothers, one sister, and his mother. The turning point in his life occurred when a local wealthy hacendado tried to kidnap and rape his sister, something that sadly was very common. But Doroteo shot and wounded this hacendado, and after saving his sister, he ran off to the mountains. Desperate and angry, he turned to crime and robbing travelers in the isolated dusty roads and took on his grandfather's name of Jesus Villa to escape the law as he was a wanted man. His enormous charisma actually won the sympathy of locals and soon his fame as a Robin Hood sort of legend was born. He continued a more or less successful life of petty crime along with doing odd jobs in the state of Chihuahua, but soon, during the revolutionary effervescence, he rapidly joined the armed forces of the insurrects and launched serious attacks on wealthy rural states. And then he rose to international fame for being a charismatic leader. And that gave birth to his nickname that was the Centaur of the North, as he was always seen riding a horse. Indeed, I'm talking about Pancho Villa, as most of you might know him. 
the icon of the northern caudillo, leading thousands of men and women who joined the uprising against the ruling class. He sided with Francisco Indalecio Madero, who was a much more moderate leader, who believed in the power of democracy, aiming to defeat Porfirio Díaz. I will talk more about him later. But Villa had no political ambitions, and his stature and gravitas was pretty much only compared to that of Emiliano Zapata, who was a caudillo of the South. Villa's fame reached even the US, as he made a contract with the Mutual Film Corporation and shot several real and staged battles on both sides of the border, while making time for his military campaigns. But like all caudillos, he himself was a victim of the discombobulated unraveling of the Mexican Revolution that brought enormous human losses, a deep economic crisis, and the mutation of a new and more aggressively corrupt ruling class. Villa, Madero, and Zapata were all murdered, and with them, the soul of the Mexican Revolution died. If you want to know more about the Mexican Revolution, I absolutely recommend that you listen to the Revolutions podcast by Mike Duncan, particularly season 9.01, which is about the Mexican Revolution. I will leave the link on the description. And if you want to read more about it, then I totally recommend you read the Spanish or English version of The Underdogs, a novel of the Mexican Revolution by Mariano Azuela, one of Mexico's most admired authors on the subject. Also, I will leave the link. All right, let's see which amazing dishes the good people of Durango eat. And here you have my list of five unmissable dishes. Número uno, discada duranguense. The origins of this tradition, as I was told by a cook, is the way farmers and ranchers used to prepare a sort of midday lunch while working in the fields. They will just dig a hole and start a small fire, use a wide pan, almost flat, to cook whatever odd cuts of meat they carried with them, along with loads of onion and chilies. And because this is a dish born out of resourcefulness, there really isn't a canonical recipe to prepare this cover. And people often use whatever meats they have. But commonly, they add sausages, beef, chorizo, cheese and potato. And it is served with very strong salsas and either corn or with tortillas with refried beans and beer. Number two, Durango is part of the dairy corridor of Mexico and is home of the largest industrial dairy farms like Lala, who works with brands like Borden Cream, Oweba and Goldenrod. But the dairy industry goes really back hundreds of years and traditional cheese making is still part of the local economy and of course the gastronomy. Because the climate of Durango is particularly hot and dry, aged are way more popular than queso fresco. And some of the most common cheeses are queso cotija, which is drier than feta, 
slightly similar in taste. Queso manchego, asadero, which are both used for grilling. Manchego is great for melting. And famously, the Mennonite cheeses steal the show and my tummy because they are so rich, creamy and intense. It's like a semi-mature English cheddar, perfect for making quesadillas with flour tortillas. Number three, let's go for a drink, and that is sotol. I know it sounds like medicine, and I guess many people prescribe themselves sotol on a regular basis. But this is a spirit made from the sotol plant, which is an aspargasaceae. Sorry if I butchered the botanical name. Now, the story of this spirit is quite interesting, because it really didn't exist as such until the Spaniards introduced the technology well, for distilling. However, local people like the Apaches, Toboso and Taromara used to prepare a fermented alcoholic drink with this very plant, which is probably what prompted the idea in Spaniards to distill it. Sotol is to the north what mezcal and tequila are for the rest of the country. And I've had many, many tequilas and mezcales in my life. But I have to tell you, I have never had such a fierce hangover as the one I had with Sotol. And perhaps when I lose my fear, I will try it again. <laughs> Maybe this time with a full tummy. Número 4. Dulces de leche. Not surprisingly, we find many sweets and confectionery prepared with milk, since milk is so abundant here. And bocaditos de nuez, or pecan mouthfuls, are a classic duranguense treat. Basically, it's a type of indulgent and delicious fudge. And número cinco, last but not least, gallinas borrachas or drunken chicken. It's a stew prepared with sherry or beer, raisins, almonds, gammon, cloves, cinnamon, garlic, and of course, chicken. We will continue with the show after this break. I created this show over three years ago when I realized that there were practically no podcasts dedicated to talk in depth about Mexican gastronomy that were entirely produced in English. To make it accessible for anyone around the world who speaks English as a first or a second language. You know, I realized that it was a great opportunity to share it in my own voice as a proud Mexican who has dedicated years to research and explore these treasures. I went on to start Paz de Chipotle alongside with an independent editorial project with themed books that contain carefully researched recipes to prepare traditional dishes, but also the equally tantalizing and rich cultural history behind them. And produced with much craft and passion, all of these books, Mexican fiestas, Mexican street food, Mexican chocolate, and Puebla's grateful tour, and my latest Mexican market food. As a digital author, I get to have the enormous privilege of creative freedom and use it to produce these books to take you on a journey discovering the amazing history behind the wonderful world of Mexican food. 
So to know more about my books and start the making of your own family traditions, go to positivebotle.com forward slash publications or find the link on this episode's notes. Go to positivebotle.com forward slash publications and get ready to cook, learn and enjoy Mexican food like you never imagined. And now, Nuevo León. Famous for its steel industry and farming activity, Nuevo León and its capital, the city of Monterrey, is the industrial powerhouse of the north. Nuevo Leonenses are proud of their agricultural and ranching culture, and many country and urban dwellers dress with cowboy boots and hats. One of Monterrey's most notable people is writer Alfonso Reyes, who was a diplomat and philosopher author of many classic short stories on the subject of the Mexican Revolution and food. I have not yet found an English version of his famous Memorias de Cocina y Bodega, or something like Memories of Food and Larder, but I will leave a link for the Spanish Kindle edition of this book, which is a real joy to read. Nuevo León, and particularly Monterrey, played a key role in the Mexican-American War, which is a whole historical episode. I won't even attempt to cover all of it. I just want to mention one particular chapter that is as serendipitous as it is fascinating, and that is a curious case of St. Patrick's Battalion. So the story goes like this. It was the year of 1845, and Mexico was already an independent nation, that is, independent from Spain. And General Zachary Taylor was leading the invasion to Mexican territory that was aimed to pretty much just provoke a violent response to justify further invasion. In order to spy and gather intelligence from the border towns, Taylor sent O'Reilly and his men who were Irish and Scottish-born soldiers who enlisted in the U.S. Army soon after emigrating from Britain. But upon realizing that they really identified themselves more with these innocent people who were Catholic Mexican town dwellers, they decided to cross the border and present their arms to the Mexican army and asked to fight side by side with Mexicans against the American invaders. War was declared soon after, and by 1846, they fought under the banner of St. Patrick's Battalion, specialists in artillery, who went on to fight numerous battles defending Mexico's soil. And while many died an honorable dead in battle, others were taken prisoners and sentenced to death. A few others were punished with public lashings and branding on their faces with the letter D for deserters. However, their honor and bravery earned them the status of heroes and martyrs of the nation, and there are plaques and monuments that commemorate their heroic acts.
More than 20 years ago, a band of bagpipes called St. Patrick's Battalion, or in Spanish El Batallón de San Patricio, was founded in Mexico City. And every first Sunday of every month, they perform a military tattoo at the Churubusco Ex-Monastery in Mexico City, that is, near Coyoacán. Many years ago, when I lived in Mexico City, I used to attend this military tattoo. And I have to say that it was very moving to see this very heartfelt homage and the Erin Gobra banner waving once again. Now, returning to modern-day Mexico, the menu that Nuevo León has to offer has loads of delicious dishes. So let's begin with numero uno. In Nuevo León, it's hard to find anything that doesn't have meat. And that is no surprise, as the high quality of their farming industry is something they're particularly proud of. That is why Cabrito al Pastor, or whole roasted goat, is one of Nuevo León's staples. The display of a cabrito can be a little intimidating if you've never seen it before, as there are rows of whole impaled goats opened, being roasted on charcoal, and they are served with flour tortillas and refried beans. And of course, there is cabrito in a dozen more forms, in consomme, in salsa, adobo, fried, and so on and so forth. Number two, Mexicans aren't new to the nose-to-tail eating, and fritada or machitos are a great example of this. This is basically a type of black pudding that is goat offal and blood cooked with herbs, ancho chile, marjoram, oregano, and cumin, chopped and stuffed in the intestines of the goat to make a sort of chorizo, boiled, then grilled on charcoal and served in tacos with a big molcajete of freshly made salsa. Numero tres is more meat, but this time is beef, in the form of carne asada or grilled on an open fire, or charcoal. To have a carne asada means also to host a gathering with friends and family, have loads of beers, music, grilled meat, spring onions, chiles, and make delicious tacos with fluffy flour tortillas. Number four, even more meat, and now dried. Machaca, which is a type of jerky made with smoked and dried meat, that can be eaten as a snack or shredded and mixed with eggs, which I am told also makes an excellent hangover cure. And last from Nuevo León, migas con huevo, which essentially they are a type of eggy chilaquiles. Migas are understandably more common in the American border cities, as many Mexicans carried on their tradition to prepare this dish. But before I get angry emails, I want to say that as per usual, migas also refers to an entirely different dish prepared in other parts of Mexico, is a sort of pork stew that is thickened with bread, because the word migas in Spanish also refers to breadcrumbs. And our next stop is the state of Coahuila. Coahuila is part of the so-called Apple Corridor, 
which has its origins around the 1950s. Coahuila is also the largest producer of sorghum and fruits like cantaloupe, pecan, nopal or cactus paddles and, like Durango, is also part of the dairy corridor of the north. Now, being a poblana myself, it will be unforgivable if I don't give a mention to General Ignacio Zaragoza, a liberal militar from Coahuila, whose role was absolutely fundamental in securing the victory of Puebla against the invading French army in the Battle of Cinco de Mayo in 1862. After securing the victory of Puebla, Zaragoza contracted typhoid fever and died at the very young age of 33 years old. Today, my city is called Heroic Puebla of Zaragoza in honor of General Ignacio. Another giant of Coahuila, although he was a tiny, tiny man, <laughs> is one of my favorite historical characters. He was quite the idealist, a weird and fascinating man. That was Francisco Ignacio Madero González, who, as I said earlier, came from a wealthy family who owned mines and agricultural estates and was educated at a Jesuit college. He then went to study in Maryland and Paris and graduated from Berkeley. He implemented health services, fair salaries and education for the workers employed by his family and became interested in politics and particularly in promoting a change from the regime of Porfirio Díaz. He ended up leading pretty much the intellectual side of the revolution and very reluctantly he assumed the leadership and candidacy largely supported by the caudillos Zapata and Villa. Madero actually won the elections, but was murdered soon after by General Victoriano Huerta, who, in spite of committing high treason, he went on to proclaim himself president of Mexico. Madero inspired a whole generation of middle and upper class Mexicans to join the revolution and support the rights of factory workers and build the structure of a democratic system. Some of his biggest supporters in central Mexico were the Cerdan siblings from Puebla, who campaigned alongside Madero. On a weird note, Madero lost his elder brother Gustavo at the hands of the same General Huerta who tortured and murdered him. And very much a man of his time, Madero turned to spiritism to contact his brother, from whom he insisted he received guidance. Perhaps some of you are familiar with the novel by Laura Esquivel, Like Water for Chocolate or Como Agua para Chocolate, by its Spanish title. This novel is set at the brink of the Mexican Revolution in the remote town of Piedras Negras. Like Water for Chocolate follows the story of Tita, who is a prodigious cook and the youngest child of Mama Elena, and her senior sisters, Rosaura and Gertrudis, who live alone in a remote ranch, accompanied by their nanny Nacha and maid Chencha mixes recipes, anecdotes, and the secrets and passions of the sisters, their loves, and the looming revolution that threatens to turn their lives upside down. Of course, I will leave you links. The novel, which is not only an amazing read, it is also a true joy to cook from it. And since I've mentioned food already, let's jump to the unmissable five from Coahuila. I want to start 
with Coahuila's wonderful wines. Coahuila has its own wine route, just like the Mexican Californias, and the activity really dates back to the colonial period. In the late 1800s, there was a huge diaspora of French, Austrian, and even Italian empresarios who revitalized the wine industry. Number two, I chose one particularly delicate and elegant pastry, and these are campechanas. And no, they're not from the state of Campeche, but they are particularly popular in Coahuila. They are prepared with a very lardy dough that is rolled to impossible thin layers, and the top is sprinkled with caster sugar, which caramelizes when they bake and puff, and they have a luscious golden brown crust. Numero 3, chorizo from Muskis. This chorizo, in true honesty, is not crazy different from other types of chorizo. It has some particular ingredients like wine or sherry, pork, oregano, ancho chiles, cumin, pepper, and cloves with a pinch of cinnamon that gives it a deep, rich, and intense flavor. Number four is a quick mention. Coahuila is also famous for its fruit liqueurs and sweet and fortified wines. Now, because it's also a very hot state, making preserves is also very popular and a delicious way to enjoy them, of course. And the last from Coahuila, yet more cabrito or goat prepared in a dish called fritada de cabrito which basically is comfy, slow-cooked young goat that is prepared from nose to tail and everything is slow-cooked to intensify the flavors of this meaty stew. And finally, we arrive to the last stop of this audible road trip in Mexico, and this is the largest state of all, the state of Chihuahua. Famously, Chihuahua is one of Mexico's most important border crossing points, as thousands of trailers and trucks that come in and out of Mexico cross via Ciudad Juárez. The native tribes were spread across the impressively rugged territory. Of the many indigenous groups from Chihuahua, the Raramuri people, also known as Tarahumara, is one of the largest of all. The very name Raramuri means, in their original language, runners. At the arrival of Spanish conquistadors, many of the other smaller tribes of the area were rapidly absorbed into the caste system, but many were also displaced. Thousands of Tarahumara people were enslaved and were forced to work in mines and converting to Catholicism. And after nearly a hundred years of this turbulent and violent relationship, in the mid-1600s, many Spaniards chose to abandon the sierras and mountains. And at the same time, many Tarahumara groups fled deeper into the canyons, which is one of the reasons why they still preserve much of their traditional practices and language. Their isolation forced them to travel large distances by foot in order to trade with other communities. By following the ancient practice of running, they were able to cover enormous distances, 
One of the main connections that the Tarahumara people have with the mestizo world is through the community of Huachochi, where there's a specialized school that prepares rural teachers fluent in Spanish and Raramuri. In the previous episode of the show, you can hear an interview I recorded with Eddie Sandoval, in which Eddie talks extensively about his family roots in this very town of Huachochi, Chihuahua, and how the native Tarahumara culture and traditions inspired his pinole business. There is a curious historical passage, which I think you will find interesting. And it's about the travels and adventures of a Spaniard called Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, who spent around eight years roaming what is today the south of the U.S. and the north of Mexico, including Chihuahua, Tamaulipas, Nuevo León, and Coahuila. During the time he spent traveling in this region, he became very interested in the life and traditions of the indigenous people. He even learned traditional medicine, a few languages, and adopted the way of dressing, eating, and living, at least for a while. But eventually, this phase came to an end, and he returned to Europe, where he wrote and published a seminal work that made him well, pretty much the first proto-anthropologist, as he recounts uh, with much detail and a very rich narrative the life and traditions of native communities of North America. The name of this book is Relación y Comentarios de Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca. And I will leave a link of an English version of this book. So let's see which edible treasures Chihuahua has to offer. Número uno, of course, I have to say pinole, which is the ancestral superfood of the Raramuri people, prepared with toasted and ground corn, and since the colonial period, it is mixed with ground cinnamon and sugar. Sometimes they also mix amaranth and chia seeds. This powder can be mixed with, with just fresh water to make a refreshing drink, or hot water and sometimes milk, to make a comforting atole, which is a type of porridge. And again, please, if you haven't listened to the latest episode, go back so you can hear more about this drink and tradition. Numero dos is another Tarahumara dish called tonari, and is only prepared as part of a sacred ritual, that is when a cow or a bull are killed. There are Catholic and indigenous rituals, dancers, and prayers blessing this occasion. Then when the animal is skinned and butchered, everything is cooked with just water for around 12 hours until the bones come off the meat. After offering some of this stew to the spiritual guardians of nature, this meal is distributed among all the communities that have been taking part, and occasionally some corn kernels are added to the stew, and is eaten with corn tortillas. Number three, something less culturally significant, but arguably more popular, and is the infamous burritos, which are prepared with large flour tortillas, beans and grilled meat, chiles and queso. Burritos are way more popular in the northern states of Mexico and border towns in the U.S. than in the rest of Mexico, where you will hardly see them, and they're largely perceived as Tex-Mex food. 
Number four. I know most of you are familiar with desiccated fruit. You know, like mixed in your cereal or as a snack. But since Chihuahua has incredibly extreme weather that can go from 45 Celsius degrees to minus 11 Celsius degrees. So not surprisingly, desiccating vegetables like courgettes is also a thing. When the harvest is really, really abundant, the one thing you want to do is to preserve it to make it last as much as possible. These dry slices of courgettes are cooked by first simmering them with some onion, salt and crumbled queso fresco. And another popular way of preparing them is by dipping them in whipped eggs and frying them on a pan. And last from Chihuahua, torrejas. Torrejas are prepared with dry or semi-dry slices of crusty white bread soaked in a mix of eggs and milk, then pan-fried. Meanwhile, you prepare a loose syrup with jaggery, that is piloncillo, aniseed and cinnamon. I personally like to add a dash of milk or cream just to thicken the consistency. Then you serve these fried slices of bread in a bowl and cover them generously with the syrup. We have reached the end of this episode and the series that started back in January 2019. Can you believe it? And we have covered in this Audible Odyssey 761,606 square miles, which is the total extension of Mexico. And you know, largely most of the culinary landscapes that only mirror the vast and contrasting ethnic and cultural zones of this country. Indeed, Mexican culture, as we understand it today, is in fact the result of an intense process of cultural exchange between 68 native indigenous tribes and the Spanish food traditions, techniques, crops and animals that were introduced into the Americas after the colonization. Added to these were all the spices, ingredients, crockery and techniques that came from the Middle East, India, Africa during the intense trade of the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries. We have visited the Central High Plains, the Caribbean, Huasteca, the Pacific North, Bajio, Pacific Southwest and today we closed down with the remaining states of the North. I really hope that this series has awakened your curiosity to know more about the traditions, history and practices around food in Mexico, which, as you can hear, can keep us discovering things for years to come. But I think this was a very good starting point. And as one chapter closes, another continues. And that is the series of the cultural staples of which you've already heard the first on chiles. That was episode 51. And in the future, you'll be hearing about key foods like corn, beans, turkey and cocoa and many, many more to come.
Thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Rocío Carvajal. Please check these episode's notes to find all the links. In case you didn't know, I also produce another podcast called Hungry Books, in which I explore books on the subject of food. And the latest episode is about a book called The Way We Eat Now, Strategies for Eating in a World of Change by B. Wilson. Which, of course, I didn't know back then when I made it, but it turned out to be just the kind of book we should be reading during this global quarantine. So check it out on your podcast app or click the link I left for you. Remember, you can always reach out and find me on Instagram, Twitter, or send me an email to hello at pazdechipotle.com. You can subscribe for free also to my newsletter and receive news discounts and exclusive content. And well, that's it for today, my friends. Stay safe.